1: often perfectionists will procrastinate because they don't want to do something imperfectly or they're building it up so high in their head that they can't even start it or their standards are so high that starting it feels impossible.
0: Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll learn how your body absorbs supplements. We'll find out about the dangers of perfectionism. We'll discuss your sexual frequency. And lastly... We'll explore the micro-activities that support longevity. But first, a little bit of business. I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show and podcast, I'm also the publisher of The Tonic Magazine. The Tonic is published six times a year and is delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. It's also available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA. And if you miss it, you can also read The Tonic online at thetonic.ca. Hey, if you like The Tonic talk show, I know you'll love The Tonic magazine. Dr. David B. Yan completed his undergraduate training at the University of Toronto in aerospace engineering in 1986. He then continued his engineering training at MIT, where he completed a Master of Science degree in Mechanical Engineering. He returned to Toronto in 1988 to attend medical school and received his Doctor of Medicine from the University of Toronto in 1992. He completed a four-year residency program in ophthalmology at the University of Toronto from 1992 to 96. Dr. Yan is the ophthalmologist-in-chief at Mount Sinai Hospital and glaucoma service director at the Kensington Eye Institute. Welcome to the show, doctor. How are you?
2: Great. Thank you.
0: So, you know, we've been discussing on the show a lot lately about, you know, not just how COVID is affecting people directly, but sort of the indirect effects of COVID. And one of those is is that people are putting off treatment of other serious diseases. And what I'd like to talk about today is glaucoma. Does that sound good? Sounds great. So let's talk a bit about glaucoma. First of all, what is it, and why is it called the silent thief of sight?
2: So glaucoma is actually one of the four most common causes of blindness in Canada, amongst which is like uh, diabetes, uh, macular degeneration, cataract, and glaucoma. So it's one of the, the top four, and it's caused by high eye pressure, damaging the nerves, the optic nerve in the eye that uh, transmits the uh, light signals to the brain. And it's often called the silent thief of sight because unlike the other three eye diseases that I just mentioned, it's often very asymptomatic until very late in the course of the disease. And that's because it affects your peripheral vision first rather than your central vision. So if people don't really notice anything wrong, then they often don't come under the necessary or recommended treatments because they are simply not suffering from any uh, side effects of it immediately.
0: So it's kind of incremental, right? Like it it isn't that you necessarily lose a lot of your vision at once. It's more like out of the corners of your eyes when you're talking about peripheral vision, you're not going to see stuff and you may not even notice that, right? Exactly.
2: It's very incremental. It is a disease that tends to cause you to lose vision very slowly over the course of months or even years. But because we don't really know exactly how much peripheral vision we should have, we often just ignore it. And the other big problem is that we do have two eyes. And if you're losing part of your peripheral vision in one eye that doesn't overlap with the area of your peripheral vision loss in the other eye, then when your both eyes are open, you may not notice any problem at all. Now, you contrast that to something like macular degeneration, where you lose part of your central vision very early. If you can't see some of the letters on your cell phone, you're gonna immediately notice something is wrong. So that's part of the problem is that we're very, very fixated on our central vision, very little on our peripheral vision. And that's how it can sort of sneak up on you. And that's why it's very commonly called silent thief of sight.
0: And I would imagine like COVID has, has sort of exacerbated the problem because, you know, people have put off their eye tests or are getting things looked at for fear of going into a medical office. Is that what you're finding? Is that what the studies are showing that, you know, people have put off these very important tests that would have showed them that they might have glaucoma?
2: Oh, yeah, we we have had tremendous problems trying to um, make sure that people have their continuity of care during COVID. Some recent studies, for example, I I think in The Lancet, uh, showed that the excess deaths during COVID are three times as high as the deaths due to COVID itself. And when you sort of translate that to other diseases like eye problems, we're finding that many more patients now are losing their vision over the course of the past couple of years compared to prior to COVID. And I think that the after effects of this will last for many years because the damage to people's vision from glaucoma that accelerated during COVID will really, I think, last in terms of the effects for the rest of these patients' lives and bring them sort of much closer to risk of losing their vision and going blind during the course of their life. So I think this is a very long-term effect that we're gonna see.
0: And I understand there was a new national survey, which was commissioned by Allergan, that shows that 45% of Canadians living with glaucoma had no prior knowledge of the disease before diagnosis, which to me is shocking, but I'm a lay person. Was it shocking to you?
2: No, not at all. And I think that that really sort of speaks to the fundamental problem with the disease is that it does affect your peripheral vision. It is very easily unnoticed. And it's really, uh, it's really no fault to the patient to not be constantly sort of testing their peripheral vision at home. It's just not something that really is a, is a major sort of impediment to their normal daily function, how much peripheral vision they have, until it's been, like, dramatically affected. So if you don't notice it and you don't go for routine eye exams, then it's not going to be picked up. And it's not something that you can notice early in the course of disease yourself. So that's why we really, really strongly advocate that patients do go for, like, routine eye exams, annual checkups, so that diseases like this, which are a very preventable cause of blindness, can be addressed at an early enough stage so that we can actually institute the necessary treatment to prevent blindness.
0: I think you may have already answered this question with your last answer, but there's nothing that we can do at home, right? Like, Like, standing in front of the mirror and moving our fingers around, like, there's nothing we can do as a layperson, ourselves, to test whether we've lost our peripheral vision, is there?
2: No, no. The main things that are affected early in glaucoma is the pressure in the eye goes up, and you don't feel that pressure going up at all. Unless it's a very acute and very sudden increase in pressure, you don't have any pain or any, you know, uh, photophobia or sort of like aversion to bright light or any of those like things that can occur when, for example, even when you have an eye infection, it's nothing like that. And, and the other thing is that the modern technology has shown us that you can very early affect the nerve function, and we can test for that nerve function now well before you lose your peripheral vision. So catching it early is really, really important. And our two key tools that we use to diagnose glaucoma early are pressure and the optic nerve function, And both of those things cannot be tested by the patient at home. Even your peripheral vision, it's far more sensitive with machines we have to test your peripheral vision quantitatively in the office than you sort of waving your fingers off to the side trying to figure out when you can see your fingers. It's simply a much cruder form of testing to try and detect glaucoma at home by yourself by trying to assess your own peripheral vision.
0: Okay, so let's say somebody was inclined to go have it tested. These tests are they, is it all covered by OHIP or not? Or is a private insurance matter or out of pocket? How does it work?
2: Now, for being an ophthalmologist, all eye exams are covered okay. by OHIP. Yep. And I'm an ophthalmologist, so I, I don't have to sort of deal with the private insurance matters. But for optometrists I think they have different set of rules. Right. So yeah, between yeah. eighteen and sixty five it's not covered. But then if you're younger than 18, over 65, then the eye exams are covered.
0: Okay. So the survey that we referenced before also shows that 69% of glaucoma patients don't know what type of glaucoma they have, which begs the question, what are the different types of glaucoma? And I guess the follow-up question is, why don't they know?
2: There are many different types of glaucoma. When you say you have glaucoma, it's sort of like saying you have heart disease, for example, that doesn't really narrow it down to exactly, you know, what was the cause and, you know, where is the pathology. So with, in terms of the different types of glaucoma, in the broadest uh, categories, there's something called open and closed angle glaucoma, where closed angle refers to a drainage area being blocked off by other tissue in your eye, and open angle refers to the drainage areas actually being blocked by um some other mechanism, usually like internal debris that, that blocks the drainage area slowly over time, and then amongst like the, all the different um, open angle glaucomas, then there are types that are caused by for example like inflammation or trauma to the eye. but for the vast majority of the people, they have the what 's called primary open angle glaucoma where the drainage areas just slowly lose their function over time, the pressure slowly uh, goes higher and um, and there 's really like no sort of known sort of uh, cause for it that the patient would be aware of.
0: Is it hereditary or is it an environmental issue?
2: Like many diseases in medicine, glaucoma is considered to be multifactorial, which means that there are many different factors that lead to you being at much higher risk. Now, one of these major factors is family history. Mm -hmm. And it's a very important factor. So if you do have first degree relatives with glaucoma, so that being like you have like children or siblings or parents, then you should be tested yourself. Now, if you're like a you know, second cousin twice removed, then that doesn't really affect the family history. But when you're looking at that type of, you know, sort of strong family history, then it really matters a lot. And that's why we say that even if you're sort of between the age of 18 and 65, you know, where you're sort of in that age group where your exams aren't covered, if you have a family history, then there really is a, a good reason for you to get screened on a regular basis because you are at much higher risk.
0: Okay, so leaving aside trauma, which is obvious, right? Like, you know, if if a projectile gets in your eye, obviously it's going to impact your eye. Are there things that we do as modern human beings in Canada that create an increased risk for glaucoma that we may not be aware of? For example, and I'm just amusing, I have no idea, is, you know, repeated use of your cell phone, you know, hunching over the phone. Is that going to cause glaucoma or are there other factors?
2: There are really no major lifestyle issues that, are modifiable in terms of your risk for glaucoma, and that can be both a good and a bad thing. Um, even high blood pressure has been a, a very, very lightly associated with the eye pressure in your eye. So basically what that means is that if you're at risk for glaucoma or if you're you know in the age category, being more elderly, that you're increased at risk, you just need to be screened for it. But lifestyle changes, unfortunately or fortunately, however you want to view that, there's really nothing that the patient does that can really sort of mitigate their risk or increase their risk that dramatically.
0: Okay. So we talked about the fact that there are different types of glaucoma and the need for testing, et cetera, et cetera, but all this sort of begs the question, you know, is there an information gap regarding glaucoma? Like where are people getting their information and, you know, how can we do a better job of that?
2: I think that there's many different sources of information these days for people for all sorts of, you know, medical problems and much of it is online. Now unfortunately, as you get older and you're at the more sort of increased risk group for, for glaucoma, you may or may not traditionally access your information in that way. Right. And so that's why I think a lot of that information has to come from having a regular eye exam and being educated by the eye care professionals with regards to the risk and um, what uh, they should be looking for and how we should be looking for the disease as well. Certainly, if you have a family history, you do become much more aware of the disease. If it's, uh, if you know you have siblings or parents, for example, with it and then they're having a daily treatment for it especially, then it's a bigger part of their lives and you become more aware of that part of their life as well. But I think that information and being able to access that information is a very very important factor because i think that's probably our our strongest defense against people going blind from glaucoma is that they're aware of it they know what they should do to check for it and be able to get onto uh, treatment early if that's necessary
0: do you have a website or an information base that you would recommend for getting reliable information about glaucoma?
2: There's many, many different websites, you know, that have uh, excellent information. I think that the one uh, put out by the Canadian Ophthalmology Society is excellent. There's various, you know, optometry societies as well that, that have uh, good sections on glaucoma. But I think if you just search online these days, Canadian Ophthalmology Society and Glaucoma, I think there's a very excellent section there Perfect. as a starter.
0: Let's say uh, somebody, unfortunately, has glaucoma. What are the types of treatment that are available to them?
2: So the usual way to start treatment for glaucoma are eye drops. And they can be fairly non-intrusive in a person's life. They usually just once a day, sometimes uh, twice a day as you get you know, into uh, requiring more advanced treatment. And as well, we have laser treatments for glaucoma. Now the lasers can be done as a, a first-line treatment, so as initial therapy, or they can be done in conjunction with the eye drops. So when you combine lasers with the effective medications we have, relatively few, I would say very few patients actually need glaucoma surgery these days, probably less than 10% or even less than 5% of all patients you know, with glaucoma eventually need surgery. Now the caveat is that these are for people that have been diagnosed relatively early the later you are diagnosed with glaucoma, unfortunately, the more likely you are to require surgery during the course of your lifetime.
0: So that begs the next question, which is our last question, and that is, is there a time when it's too late to effectively treat glaucoma?
2: I think that as long as you have useful vision in your eye, it's never too late to treat glaucoma. And obviously, we advocate for earlier treatment because you're far less likely to go blind if you started treatment early. And I think that the greatest impediment to successful treatment for glaucoma is really actually education and in the uh, survey that you mentioned earlier, one of the sort of really surprising findings that that came out of this was that upwards of one in seven patients with glaucoma that have been treated for many years still are not aware that if they stop taking their drops that they can lose their sight and it's a permanent loss of vision that you cannot repair once that damage has been done. And that, I think, is really the biggest challenge that we have as glaucoma surgeons, right, is to try and get our glaucoma patients to actually avoid having to see us and avoid having surgery with us. Because if they can not have to get to the stage where they need surgery, they're far more likely to do well in the long term and preserve good quality of life and good quality of vision.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. That was Dr. David Yan. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss the dangers of perfectionism on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Enjoy the energy, enjoy the detox, enjoy the great taste. Purely natural, liquid greens.
2: This is The Tonic on Zuma Radio.
0: Tracy Zagrati has an eclectic background in molecular biology Psychology and nursing. She practices psychotherapy and yoga therapy and has over twenty years of experience in leading classes, workshops, and events. She believes that the tools of mindfulness pave the way for deeply meaningful life at any stage. And you can find her at Sogratiyoga.com, Sograti on Facebook, or at Tracy Sograti on Instagram. Welcome back to the show. How are you doing, Tracy? Ooh, I'm awesome. How are so you? I'm doing great. Yeah. Not perfect. Not but, perfect. But You're great, sure? right? <laughs> But it's that constant state of striving for perfection, right?
1: Don't I know it.
0: Yeah, there you go. So this episode, we are talking about something that is right in my wheelhouse.
1: Yeah, yeah, Uh, it's all about you.
0: It is, right? So Mm -hmm. it's like my favorite thing to talk about. So let's get to it. Yeah. What is perfectionism and and why can it be a problem? I don't see it as a problem, but go on.
1: Well, I was wondering, that was one of the questions I thought I should just ask Jamie, does he know that this is a problem?
0: Yeah, he doesn't.
1: Okay, so perfectionism is actually not about being perfect. No, it so I just want to yeah. say that yeah. first off, it's where a person is living with these sort of unrelenting high standards. And you know, how do you know if they're unrelenting? You know, how do you know if they're too high? It's it's that the standards are sort of unreasonable based on the circumstances. Yeah. Right. So it's like no matter what you do in the circumstances that you're in, you can't actually achieve them, yeah. or you have, to, there, you have to do so much to achieve them that you almost break yourself. And this isn't true for all people, but for some people, their self-worth is sort of contingent on achieving the standards. So if they're so high that you can never achieve them, and your self-worth is contingent on them, then you can see that that's sort of problematic,
0: right? Yeah. I kind of see it like it's a form of narcissism in a strange <laughs> way. And also it leads to unhappiness. Because uh, yeah. you're never satisfied with what you do, like ever.
1: you're never satisfied exactly. and yes. yeah, I mean, you're right, you're right. like and, and you know it's also like one of the kind of tricky things about it is people will often sort of misinterpret the desire for excellence yeah. or sort the perfectionism as a desire for excellence. and you're right, so there's unhappiness, right like that's that's a problem. but the other thing is that there's just no free time. And I think a really problematic part of it is that the person who lives with perfectionism stops trusting other people,
0: or never did trust anybody or else. Ne- or yes, yeah, or right. Did.
1: He never did trust other people, and so they try to do every single thing by themselves, True. and that means that when they don't achieve the super high standards, they only have themselves to blame.
0: Yes. What are some of the behaviors? of people who exhibit perfectionism.
1: Yeah. So some of the behaviors that come out of perfectionism are a lot of trouble with decision-making. So it could look like even having trouble deciding what you're going to wear to work because everything like you, you have to put on like a certain persona. It might look like having trouble deciding where to go for dinner or mm-hmm. what even to make for dinner, what to cook. Yep. So another thing that you see is reassurance seeking. So I see this more in teens, to be honest, who are suffering from perfectionism. And it might look like asking or looking for a lot of reassurance or asking people to check their work or checking the work themselves. Older people, it looks like excessive organizing, right? So list making, writing and rewriting lists. yeah, Yeah. Does that sound familiar to you?
0: Oh, who could say?
1: Yeah. <laughs> Giving up too soon. And this one is really tough because when someone's trying to learn a new skill and it's really tough to master, the perfectionist, if they don't get it right away, it might lead to them not even trying. And that's sort of where procrastination comes in too. Yeah. like that's one piece that people are sort of confused about. It's like, why am I procrastinating? And often perfectionists will procrastinate because they don't want to do something imperfectly or they're building it up so high in their head that they can't even start it or their standards are so high that starting it feels impossible.
0: For me, it's the middle. It's, uh, it's like I fear the work before I do it. When I do it, I'm fine. Yeah. But I build it up to the point where like, oh, my God, I don't think I can do this. Uh-huh. And, uh-huh. and then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy sometimes. Right?
1: Yeah. Because you haven't started it. Exactly. Yeah. Right. This is one thing I work with people on a lot. Okay. So this one's funny. And I wonder, I wonder how you relate to it. Not knowing when to stop. So like belaboring a point.
0: Well, OK, so here's the thing. I, I, I was a commercial litigator <laughs> I for 20 years. Right. And you can't like you can't. It's so ingrained. I ne- like I, I must beat everybody else into submission. It's just yeah. that's just the way it is. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So you can see how even a certain line of work is going to actually value this. Oh, for sure. Right. Yeah. Like any kind of sort of type A, like high, high stress job. You
0: haven't convinced me about the negative side yet, but go on.
1: (laughs) Okay. So, well, I'm going to go back to the
0: negative (laughs) side. Yeah, I know.
1: Okay. So correcting others, that's, you know, pretty common. Yeah. Overcompensation. And so this is where I land actually, because I have this tendency and I overcompensate. Like everything I do, Mm -hmm. I do, you know, 10 times or a hundred times better than I think anybody else will do it just so that I can show, like, how awesome I am at it. Yep. Checking your work, your clothes, your appearance, <laughs> hoarding things, right? Yep. So perfectionism can look like hoarding things just in case. Yep. Failure to delegate, which we kind of talked about earlier, is problematic. And that just means, like, you're so stressed out all the time. When you can't delegate things, you're so stressed out all the time that you can't actually enjoy life. And I- then the other thing is your nervous system is so jacked that... You get kind of caught in this trap of thinking that that's normal. So when your nervous system does have an opportunity to relax, it feels uncomfortable.
0: It is impossible for me to relax, like mm-hmm. literally, literally impossible. Idle mm-hmm. time is the worst thing for me. Some people like to sit by the beach or by the pool. Mm-hmm. I can't abide by it. I can't. <laughs> like, I, like, what I,
1: happens for you, Jamie? I
0: don't know. And, and, you know, it's I work at my own pace. It's really weird. Uh-huh. But if you tell me I have nothing to do, then I start to panic.
1: You freak out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mhm yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, that could be a whole other episode. I might want to go into that with you, yep. yeah, so and and then you've got slowness, like so some people i don't I don't know that this happens for you, but for some people. And I know uh, certain clients I have because the work feels so overwhelming or they've built it up so much in their head. They get really, really slow. So they kind of procrastinate. And once they start that checking behavior of going back and making sure, is it perfect? Have I gotten everything? Have I not missed anything? You know, it becomes so overwhelming that they work slow and miss deadlines.
0: Okay. So that actually isn't me. Because as a lawyer, you couldn't miss deadlines and and when you're when you're publishing a magazine or have a weekly show, deadlines are everything. So I actually go the reverse. I actually have become an incredibly quick worker and because I'm I'm both a procrastinator and I have to be super efficient because you can't have it both ways. Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: In in some ways, this is good for me uh, because having the quick deadlines forces me into a certain behavior.
1: Yeah. Well, and it also it also sets you up so that you don't have to think about things too much.
0: Correct. I don't. I actually don't have the time to procrastinate. I really don't. Yeah.
1: And that's interesting because part of the treatment for people like if I'm if I'm circling around to okay, how do I treat the person in front of me? Mm-hmm. Then part of the treatment is actually limiting the amount of thought that goes into whatever the person is trying to do, so that there isn't so much over planning, yeah. over checking over
0: reviewing, you know, I think with maturity, when you do something enough times, Mm -hmm. you build a comfort level and then you realize how much planning is actually involved. You -hmm. you, you hit a sweet spot.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, I think this is a yin yang thing where clearly I see some of the behaviors you've listed here as being negative. There's no question. Yeah. Yeah. But (laughs) I I think a lot of it actually helps to create a situation where you can be hyper effective. And I know that's not the takeaway point, but I'm just telling you, like, you, 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 you can learn to cope with it, I think.
1: Yeah. So, you know what? Like, I would tease it out. I would give a sort of more nuanced approach. I would say that when you're striving for excellence which is absolutely what you're talking about here, that's really positive. So, you know, striving for excellence, you want to do the best work that you possibly can. You want to do it most efficiently. You want to connect to your strengths and your purpose. If there's certain things you want to build in yourself, it's important to focus on that. So I think yes to all of those things. And I would kind of put that in the category of striving for excellence. Where it gets into the the more negative things is where there's no free time, right? Or where you can't enjoy the achievements.
0: I think that's the problem. I think truthfully, not so much the former, but the latter for me uh-huh. is I never feel as good as I think I, I will
1: uh-huh. when I
0: achieve something or when I achieve it, I think, oh, okay, so I did it. So therefore I can't be such a big deal, right? Like how good yeah. could it possibly be if, if I was I able to do it, if I could if do I it, if I was
1: able to do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's the piece. And that's where I would kind of, it's like walking a tightrope right? Because there's this fine line, you're right, where, where it's actually seen as a positive trait, you know, the standard of excellence. It's applauded by society. It allows you to move forward. So those are all the great things about it. But when you yeah. can't savor your own growth or your own accomplishments or settle into just feeling great about it, then we've gone into something that might be a bit pathological.
0: Okay. So what do I do?
1: So what do you do is you start to ask yourself the question, how do I respond to myself for making mistakes? How do I respond to others when they make a mistake? Okay. Mm, yep. So that's the first question. The second question that I would ask myself is what is a reasonable standard given the circumstances. And that takes a little more self-reflection, right? And it means we have to ask ourselves, okay, like, what are the standards we're setting in a particular setting? And we have to notice, like, am I a perfectionist in my work, in my study, in my housework, in my relationships? Like, what are all the places that I'm doing this? And what's an appropriate standard? And then the final thing that I would ask myself is what does savoring look like? What does it feel like? What does it taste like? and not just food, right? Like, yeah. how do I start to savor what I actually have achieved?
0: Good advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show today.
1: Always a pleasure, Jamie.
0: That was Tracy Sograti. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. Hi, this is Jamie Bussin of The Tonic. If you enjoy The Tonic talk show and podcast, you'll love The Tonic newsletter. With links to the podcast and articles from the magazine, the newsletter will also let you know about upcoming health and wellness events, curated articles from across the internet that expand on the health and wellness topics important to you. There's contests and prizes and so much more. Best of all, it comes directly to you. To subscribe, be sure to visit thetonic.ca. The Tonic newsletter, you know for what ails you. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural, liquid greens.
2: You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio.
0: Carlisle Jansen is a sex therapist and founder of Good For Her, Toronto's premier sexuality store and workshop centre. She's the author of two books, including Sex Yourself, and you can find her educational videos and TED Talk at jansen.com and she can be contacted at carlisle at goodforher.com. Welcome back to the show, Carlisle. How are you?
3: Hi, Jamie. I am well, thanks. Thanks for having me back.
0: Always great to have you on the show. We're going to be talking about sexual frequency today and when you pitched this topic to me, my first thought was, should we even be talking about sexual frequency? Should <laughs> we? Should we even be broaching this subject, Carlisle? Well,
3: yes and no. I think that we put too much credence on it. We put too much importance on sexual frequency. And I think it's a dangerous question when we get into comparisons with other people. I think that we can talk about it in terms of in my relationship, what kind of sexual frequency would I like? But I think it's dangerous when we make comparisons.
0: Yeah. I mean, obviously you're, you're setting yourself up for potential disappointment if, if you feel like you need to be compared to others, right? Like, you know, it's, yes. you're, you're looking for external validation, I suppose, right?
3: Often it is. And unfortunately, we are sometimes looking to feel okay about our preferences. So if we like to have sex, you know, relatively regularly, but our partner doesn't, and sometimes we're looking for, okay, is it normal for me to want sex this often? Or is it okay for me to want sex this often? And like, well, if the average is, you know, five times a week, then, you know, I'm not even getting, quote unquote, the average. So I should be able to ask for more as opposed to or somebody who feels like they don't want sex that often. They're sometimes looking for validation. Yeah, but all my friends say they only have sex twice a week. So we're doing well, right?
0: Isn't it just expert evidence for the case that you're making in, in sexual court yeah, with, with your partner, sure. right? Yeah. It's like, well, I know that everybody else is doing it more than us. Therefore, you are offside, my friend, right? Like, right. That's, Isn't that essentially what we're doing, right?
3: Yeah. We're trying to get some validation of our own perspective and feel like we're okay the way we are.
0: But many people have delved into the issue of what is the average rate, right? Like, I'm, like median rate, average rate. And, and what does that all mean? Like, Carla, I'm sure you have some numbers for us, but what do they mean?
3: Well, they just mean that in a study, yeah. that this is what people reported. And it also depends on how do you define sex. Right. Is, you know, usually it's sexual intercourse. Not all couples have sexual intercourse because of preferences, because of bodies, because of pain. But numbers are just numbers. You know, my favorite analogy about statistics is that the average human has one breast and one testicle. Which, you know, if you look at averages, it's true, but it doesn't really, it doesn't give you much useful information.
0: No, it does not.
3: So, you know, when it does come to statistics, you know, in the United States, and we're probably relatively similar here in Canada, the average frequency of intercourse is somewhere between one to three times a week. Now, that's usually at the beginning of a relationship. And so as time goes on, you know, you have fewer and fewer couples who are, say, after 10 years of a relationship, fewer and fewer couples are living up to that one to three times a week. It tends to be a lot less frequent. But in the first two years of a relationship, it tends to be about half couples are engaging that often.
0: So we kind of touched upon it before, but why do you think people want to know? Is it just simply so that they can arm themselves with this, you know for that sexual argument, or are there other reasons that we want to know?
3: I. One of the biggest questions I get is, am I normal? And so people want to know whether it's okay. Or sometimes, you know, I get a lot of clients who think that their partner must be addicted if they want sex four or five times a week. And, you know, that's not a sign of addiction in and of itself. But sometimes we feel pressured by a partner, we might feel deprived that we're not getting enough sex, or maybe if we didn't know what anybody else is doing, we would actually feel satisfied with our sex life. But the comparison makes us feel not.
0: So that, that's like a blissful ignorance, though, right? Isn't it?
3: Like- Sometimes, yeah. And I think it's healthy. If we're happy yeah. with the way things are and we don't know that other people are doing it differently, I don't see anything wrong why we shouldn't still be happy with the way things are. Now, unfortunately, a lot of couples have different perspectives. It's very rare that everybody has exactly the same libido. So usually one one or both partners feel things might be a little bit
0: off. Don't you think that people are looking at it as sort of a symptom of greater issues, though? Right. Like we're not having sex or we're having sex like the sex is displacing our other forms of communication or we're not having sex. So something else must be wrong. Don't you think that that's why people care?
3: and certainly for some couples it is kind of a barometer and and it can be the first sign of trouble so if we stop communicating as well as we used to if we stop being on the same page sex is often the first sign that things are not going so well but that isn't necessarily an accurate sign it isn't necessarily it's a sign of trouble it might be that things are fine, (laughs) but we're just not having sex as often. Or it might be that, you know, the frequency is okay, but the quality is not good Right. or the satisfaction isn't there for everybody. And so there are a lot of different factors that go into a healthy sexual relationship, not just frequency.
0: So is there any metrics by which knowing this information could be helpful? Are comparisons helpful to anybody?
3: I don't find really. I mean, it is, it's a useful, interesting statistic, but I don't think it really ever helps anybody because nobody's normal quote unquote. We all have different incomes. We all like to do different things. We all argue at different levels and we have different comfort (laughs) levels with how well, how often we argue, how loud the arguments are. And so I'm not sure it's actually really helpful. I think what we really need to think about is how do we feel about our sex life overall? How's the quality of our sex life? What would I like in terms of quantity as opposed to what's normal in terms of quantity and frequency? I think that's a more useful kind of conversation.
0: I suppose it is, except like quantity is a number, right? Like it's easily understood. You're either doing it or you're not doing it. Although I appreciate your comment earlier that not everybody considers sex to be the same thing, but it's probably easier to tell quantity than it is quality, isn't it? Isn't quality pretty subjective?
3: It's very subjective. And one person's quality can be not high quality for the other person. Absolutely. You know, and quantity, one person might be happy with and the other person not as well. So certainly quantity is quantifiable. It's measurable. While we, you know, and very often when I meet with couples, they know exactly how many times they've had sex in the last month, if it's an issue. (laughs) Right. Or in the last year, they've got it in their heads. But, you know, sometimes it's a matter of, you know, also like does a one sided oral sex adventure count as sex? Right? Yeah. When only one person got pleasure. Does a quickie count the same as a two-hour extended cuddling, lying, several, you know, escapades of different kinds of sex? Does that count as one as well, right? And what feels more satisfying to different partners can really vary.
0: So what's the question that everybody's really looking at when they're asking about frequency? What are they really getting at, do you think?
3: people want to know is how satisfied are we with our sex lives and how often are we having sex compared to how often we want to have it. Mm -hmm. I think that's really what people want to know. And how happy are we with our sex life? How happy are you with the frequency? I think that's the question that people ultimately want to know and are asking. And if they're saying, you know, we're not having sex as often as I'd like to, or as often as, you know, everybody else on the street that I've surveyed, then the question is, okay, so what is it that you would like then? We're not going to keep up with the Joneses, but what would feel good to you? And then I'm going to tell you, well, I might be more interested in sex more often if we spend more time with foreplay or we have more kind of just general makeout sessions so that it's not just having sex where we have some physical intimacy or you know, I might enjoy sex more if we focused more on my pleasure and I actually had orgasms. You know, there's a lot of different aspects that can go into really that question.
0: Yeah. It seems to me that if we jettison this notion of like, if we stop worrying about average, right, or median or whatever it is, then we actually free ourselves to explore what's really important to us and, and not have that stress. Does that make sense?
3: Yeah. I think to Take the idea of normal or average out of the question and think about what's my desire? Yeah. What, are, what are our sexual experiences like? What am I curious about? What do I still want to explore? What are things that bring me lots of pleasure that maybe we haven't done for a long time? What are things that I'm assuming that you don't like to do, but maybe you actually do? Or maybe you used to not like doing, but maybe you want to try again so that we're constantly rediscovering each other, we're rediscovering pleasure, we're expanding what kinds of sex we have, and that we're able to communicate what we want, we're able to say what we like, and be confident that that's okay, and listen to our partner without judging them that, oh, well, they want sex too often. No, it's not too often, it's what they want. It's about us negotiating what our sexual life will look like that feels good to both of us.
0: Sounds great. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's
3: always a pleasure.
0: That was Carlisle Jansen. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Hi, this is Jamie Busson. I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show and podcast, I'm also the publisher of the Tonic Magazine. The Tonic is published six times a year and is delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. It's also available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA. And if you miss it, you can also read The Tonic online at thetonic.ca. Hey, if you like The Tonic talk show, I know you'll love The Tonic magazine.
2: This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio.
0: Jane J. Wang is a longevity, mortality risk specialist, and founder and CEO of Optimity Health Rewards, a free app that incentivizes people to live healthier and longer based on fun daily microactivities. She has a mission to make being healthy easy and accessible. She made it her life's work. Jane consults global medical, pharma, and insurance companies on developing technologies and programs to make people live longer. It was the passing of her mother that led Jane to leave her career to create a health company. Welcome to the show, Jane. How are you?
4: I'm great. I'm feeling pretty good mentally. And also this morning, I got to do some yoga, so physically stretched out as well.
0: So excellent. I have not done my workout. That comes later for me. I'm an afternoon workout guy.
4: You got to listen to your circadian rhythm.
0: Exactly. So, you know, with that intro, it begs the question, what the heck is a longevity mortality specialist? Please advise (laughs)
4: It's someone that works with data to keep people uh, healthy. Specifically, we create a algorithm, or sometimes several algorithms, a health grade, a health score, that helps really assess how you're doing in terms of sometimes it's cancer prevention, sometimes it's for a specific disease. So I worked on multiple sclerosis, Alzheimer's, ovarian cancer, and HIV as well. So a lot of the products and programs that I got to work with were used internationally managing thousands of patients in high profile uh, clinical trials and also for populations as well.
0: So when you're talking about longevity and mortality, are we talking quantity, quality, or both? Both.
4: So it looks at uh, how long you will live, what's the likelihood, for example, that you will live into your 80s, 90s, so on. And it also looks at your likelihood of high quality of life, like how we can manage a disease, for example, diabetes.
0: Okay. So what's your experience in this domain? Like in the intro we mentioned you work for, you know, developing technologies for insurance, medical pharma. Can you elaborate a bit?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So maybe a little bit of background. I came from a family of engineers. So we all, you know, coded as kids and I really loved games. I also had a passion for science. So after I got my honors degree in biochemistry, it was really interesting because I had this kind of intersection between tech as well as health, and uh, a lot of the healthcare systems were looking to build tools that are more digital, going beyond kind of the paper systems and the clinical systems. So I got to work in that movement in the early 2000s and going into the uh, 2010s, spending 10 years building platforms, coding basically, uh, and managing teams to create these kind of game-like incentivized experiences for patients to really make health less kind of scary, but more regimented and directed and easy to access. So accessible firstly through the web, and then now accessibly through mobile phones.
0: So let's start at the beginning. Can you actually predict a person's lifespan?
4: Somewhat we can, yes. It's more about likelihood. So it's a percentage of likelihood of someone having a good quality, high quality of life in their you know 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s depending on your family history, depending on your own personal habits or your current existing conditions.
0: So what are the types of things that are relevant? And I presume it's not the things that we might necessarily think are the benchmarks.
4: Some of them are usual suspects. So really, we simplified it down to five pillars of health. Okay. So it's physical, right? So yeah. your current how you're doing today, uh, nutrition, what you put in your body, mm-hmm. uh, mental health, right? How you're feeling, are you stressed? because it triggers all kinds of, you know, hormonal, cortisol, like all these downstream reactions within your body. Right. Chemical. Yep. And then social connectedness, actually, this is a little bit less studied before, but it's quite prevalent in more academic studies, but not necessarily fully applied all the way across. So social connectedness. So just the same way that There's a thing where you earn as much as your five closest friends. Uh, It's the same thing with your healthy habits or your longevity. It's probably pretty similar to those around you because those around you could be family members that share similar genetics and health habits. They could be friends who you also share similar hobbies, activities, eating, drinking habits, or your spouse and children, right? So, So social connectedness is actually a really big part of health mortality or morbidity kind of calculation in the newest sense. And some people connect that to the social determinants of health. And then lastly, and I think this is the one that many people that work in healthcare don't necessarily put into their regimen. And this is the part where I found our contribution has been just kind of quite pivotal, even in my own family's life, which is financial wellness, because a lot of Diseases are treatable, <laughs> a lot of habits are social-economical, uh, a lot of stress is created by financial situations, so the financial wellness really is the well, the products that we have, everything from insurance to financial investment to the way that we earn money, the way that we, you know, what type of jobs we have to how we manage that money. Financial wellness itself is actually quite foundational to any healthcare plan because not only does it impact how you live today, it also impacts how you'll have money or you'll have the resources to take care of yourself later as you age.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And interestingly, you know, we actually have not covered that on the show. I'm also interested in your concept of micro activities. Can you explain what they are and and how it fits into your, in your picture with the pillars?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So there's a a big study of uh, tiny habits. So I got to study that as well and during my time at Stanford we got to work in the wearable labs with uh, the PhDs and researchers there and then there's also a great researcher he has a great TED talk about this called BJ Fogg so it's really the science of small habits especially now in a quite digitally or even work at home is quite you're inundated you have a lot of things coming at you, right, long form content, long regimens, and health itself is a scary topic. So it's really hard for people to digest. So we found, like I worked on HIV, right, it's a disease that's very much linked. If you follow your regimen, you take your medication, you kill those things, you will definitely out survive uh, someone who doesn't do that. But many times people don't, right, like about a third of the patients don't take their med, they don't take their pills on time, they avoid certain medical, you know, clinical visits. Why is that? Well, it's because one, it's not digested in a format that they can really put into their daily lives, right? Maybe they don't have the pill reminders. They don't have the things to help them with those habits. And then two is that the content is also written quite dry and scary. It's not really done in a level that is easy to meet the patient or the person where they are. So if that's true for a very serious and life threatening disease what about for daily life prevention right daily daily healthy activities that's even harder when it's written in long form content when it's really quite demanding when you have to put you know 60 to 90 minutes into a workout routine or preparing meals and all this stuff it really creates a huge barrier of entry and for the average person who is just so busy, especially if you're managing, you know, a family as well. So this is especially important for people in the 30s, 40s, where directionally all your behavior dictates how you're going to be able to be healthy in the 60s, right? So microactivities really allow us to digest it into something that the modern person today can consume and can feel sense of accomplishment. It's doable for them and it's doable for them over a long period of time, which is habit formation.
0: So basically what you're saying is, you know, taking big concepts and breaking them down into little steps so that like, it doesn't seem so daunting. In other words, you know, psychologically we can do the little things, right? But it's the big things that we struggle with. So can you give me some examples of like micro activities that people can manage?
4: Yeah. Yeah. I'll use a very simple one. So People are talking about flossing, right? As an example, we know that tooth health is uh, connected to heart health. But maybe you know there's a really great example of like just the micro habit of flossing one tooth. But who's going to floss one tooth? Right? Once you start, you're going to do your whole mouth. Right. So it's a great way to get started. Another way of is really stretching. So for example, we do these micro breaks. There are 30 seconds to two minute activities. There are these stretches between work breaks, right? Because you're probably going from one Zoom call to another or one meeting to another. Maybe you only have a few minutes in between to take a bio breath and whatnot, but if we can put something in there that is fun, that is a bit of a game, maybe just even as we're having this conversation, you know, sucking your stomach in and uncrossing your legs to sit up, those micro activities actually yield huge results in terms of back pain management or just an amount of nascent steps that you get in the day.
0: Okay. So you created Optimity. Am I pronouncing that right? Is it Optimity? Yeah, it's perfect. It oh.
4: a state of being best actually. So it's a dictionary word.
0: Ah, okay. I thought it was a made up word. There you go. So what is the app? How does it work?
4: So the app is full of these micro activities. It has your daily three activities that you do. And then it also has these educational quizzes that uh, that makes it more of a game. So we kind of talked about the content for micro activities, but there's also this thing about motivation. Yeah. We give rewards we give kudos, the, the gems that you can trade in for gift cards, for uh, other loyalty points, for, you know, grocery or gas. And then you also get to do something with a friend. So there's a lot of fun, game-like, joyful experiences also in here. So Optimity brings that all together. and makes it really available to all consumers out there because my passion was really try to take the best of what's available for clinical care, for large pharma companies or healthcare systems, but bring it to the average person someone like my mother could use, right, so that we can use in our own backyard.
0: And I understand you created this app in sort of honor of your mom, right?
4: Yeah, it really was. I realized that when she was really sick, she couldn't actually access any of the great programs that I was part of. Uh, she couldn't, you know, it, it wasn't very easy for her, it didn't really have programs for her. and that made me realize the impact that I had on the world wasn't where I needed it to be. So I decided to be part of the solution to make it available and free to every single human. So now you can literally uh, download the app today. You can use it for free and you mm. get, we have our premium program for insurers and employers and things like that, but you get literally the basics as well for
0: the consumer. And you can actually upgrade yourself into premium. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today.
4: Well, thanks for having me. And I hope everyone that's listening, take a second, a minute for yourself and do a micro activity today and reward yourself.
0: Fantastic. That was Jane Wang. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. David Yan, Tracy Sograti, Carlisle Jansen, and Jane Wang. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles written by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The March-April issue is available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our new website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Bussin wishing you a healthy and happy week.